You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Grace has always had a strange way of doing things. She's a funny kid. It's extraordinary to see how her mind works. She's dealing with this better than most people at her advanced stage. She's definitely not getting any better. My first question is, have you ever seen a miracle? Grace, this is not how it's done. Hey, dig that. Destiny. Okay, where are you? See, I don't find this kind of thing funny. Where where are you? Does this coffin make me look fat? I just, I don't have time for your pranks. This is my business. I'd be more than happy to call the police. Hello, police. Thank God. I'm being held hostage in my beautiful funeral home by a bald, sickly-looking teenage girl. I just want to know what's going to happen to me. Can I ride in the hearse? Wait your turn. She is delightful. Yeah, she's a barrel of laughs. Every one of them inappropriate. Where are you going, Walsha? I'm not going to fall for your tricks. It's just normalcy, Bill. Don't be afraid of being normal. Well, look who's talking. I want to believe because I believe, not because I'm afraid of dying. Teach me. Men spoons or to believe? It's the dying that really is easy. Oh, my darling. You don't choose to die. It just happens when it happens. But living right takes fighting and commitment and honor and all those things that are so damn hard for so many humans. I'm not strong. Not like you. What are you afraid of, Bill? Me! Well, you'll be glad to know that it's only convenient will soon pass. And then what? What do I do when you're gone? I think some people get grace. And others never will. So when I get to the other side, do you want me to contact you? How about we not get ahead of ourselves? How about we start with the other side of the table, see how that goes? Hey folks, welcome to a special edition of The Projection Booth, coming at you with an interview with actor, producer, writer, director, gosh, he's wearing a lot of hats these days. That's Daniel Roebuck, who a lot of people know from the films of Don Coscarelli, Rob Zombie, Penelope Spheris, whole bunch of stuff. He's been acting for a little bit, and he's got some great stories to tell, including about his new movie, Getting Grace. Now let's go ahead and roll that interview. I wanted to know how you got interested in acting and how you managed to get into show business. What a crazy uh, world that I've lived in. So I've been writing a book called The Audition is the Job and Other Truths that I've Learned in the Land of Make-Believe. So I have been reflective on that exact question for uh, the last two years as I've been writing. because I've been trying to come up with a, a way to tell actors to make it easier for them through the prism of my own life, which would which would apparently make it seem like 
becoming an, a movie star or a working actor or whatever was, was not that hard. But of course it was that hard. I, when I was a little boy, when I was six years old, I started just saying, when I'm on TV, when I'm on TV. And, you know, my parents, of course, if they had money, they would have sent me to a psychoanalyst. What's the matter with this kid? How does a kid from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania get on TV? I just saw myself on TV. This is kind of where I've reflected to. And somehow at six, I had the wherewithal to see what God's like long-term goal for me was. And I think maybe we all get that kind of intuition, it's called, but we ignore it 99.9% of the time. So I just started thinking I was supposed to be on TV. Um, when I was six, I remember watching a Popeye cartoon, first grade. And in the Popeye cartoon, he has three nephews. And the three nephews, just, they watch a cartoon and then decide they're going to make a cartoon. So from that, what the takeaway from that was, I'm going to make a play about the, the stuff that they did kind of in a cartoon. So let's say the very first thing I did was plagiarize somebody else's work. I drew these pictures because in 1969, in first grade, you didn't know how to write. That's what they taught you in first grade. They Now when you have children, you're, you have a granddaughter, people that have an expectation, the poor kid is supposed to be reading at four. Why? Why can't you just be a child? Why can't you just be a little, beautiful little girl until she gets to school and then learn stuff? But it's just not how it's done now. Anyway, so I couldn't write. So essentially, I drew pictures of my play. And I took them into school, St. Anne's Catholic School. And I went to this poor sister, Kathleen, who, you know, somehow drew the short straw and got first grade and a bunch of running those little brats. And I brought my drawings up to her one morning and I said, I wrote a play. And she was like, uh, oh, well, we should put on your play. She didn't say sit down or stop bothering me or that's not a play, you mentally handicapped person. She said, OK, let's do your play. So that's a, it's like a. You know, again, because I reflected on it a lot, I see that as really a defining moment, not just of a career that was forthcoming 20 years later or 14 years later, but really the difference between being a thinker and a doer was thanks to Sister Kathleen, who then went out of her way to teach me how to put on the play because I didn't know how to put on the play. Up to that point, I my entire resume consisted of performing in a cardboard television that my parents got me, you know, probably the biggest regret of their life. They got me a cardboard television. I was in it all the time, pretending to be on TV. So weird. So the cardboard television led to the, the, the little play I did, and I did the play. And, and the, uh, you know, a come around to that story is, I'm going to put this out there. One day we're, we're working on Getting Grace, and we have this lovely 17-year-old girl who's working on the crew because we had a lot of local kids, teenagers and young college kids, helping us out because I was open to any help. And the girl says, oh, I think you know my mom. And I was like, oh, really? Who's your mom? And she said, Ann Kish. Well, Ann Kish was the star of my play in first grade. So, you you know, it, you just, every everything is the groundwork for the future. And that was something. So, so it was back in those days, you have to understand that being on TV didn't really mean you had to be an actor because there was so many variety shows of many varying different kinds of variety shows. So I didn't know if I was going to be, was I going to be uh, an actor or a comedian or a ventriloquist? I, I had a ventriloquist doll when I was 
six. Like, you see what I'm saying? Everything's getting worse and worse, isn't it? Like, everything I'm telling you is making you think, oh, God, this guy. So imagine, like, a six-year-old with cardboard TV, a play in my pocket, and a ventriloquist doll. I mean, I must have really been the most annoying young person in Bethlehem. But it was I was always creating something. Like always, always, always thinking about making something or making someone laugh. And so I did, I was ventriloquist, you know, in my personal living room. I think the first time I performed, I, I, I was a clown in a circus 12 years old. That sounds ridiculous, but there was a circus that originated locally that toured Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and sometimes New York. And it was a circus that we'd go into high school auditoriums and weekends and put on this Lions All-Star Circus. And I got a job there as a clown when I was 12, 13, 12 and 13. I did two seasons. And so then I was performing and then, you know, I liked magic and one of the other clowns said, well, why don't you do magic shows since you're already a clown? So then I did clown magic shows. And then right about that same time, I found a theater and then I started doing plays. And once I found the theater, I never left the theater. And then I did stand-up comedy and then I moved to California. So I squeezed all that in from, from six years old to 20 when I left, 14. I had seven careers and I had to, we, you know, we're lower middle-class family. I also had to work uh, if I needed money. Although there's something something exciting about being a performer. Uh, and, you know, like I made more money as a clown than any other kid I knew made in an entire year. I made it a weekend. It's crazy. And I used to do, and then I was impressionist for, you know, school talent shows. I, I did him, you know, you, you dirty rat, you stinking copper, or, you know, like, uh, Oh, Peter, and I would do these impressions, you know. And I'd win talent shows with my impressions. Yeah, clown, impressionist, magician, actor, comedian. And then when I moved out to California in 1984, Seinfeld didn't exist yet. So it was clear you could either be a comedian or you could be an actor, but you couldn't be both. So I chose the actor path. And then, you know, four years later, they were making Seinfeld. And from that point on, nobody ever looked for an actor to star in a TV series again. They only looked for comedians. So you move out there when you're 21 and you're 22 and you're already starring in Cave Girl? Yeah, Cave Girl would have been, that was 84 the same year. So I was uh, just, just 21. I came out here in uh, February, I must say, February of 84. And by October of 84, I was starring in my first movie. Now, the first movie was Cave Girl. It's, you know, but it said starring Daniel Roebuck. And it didn't matter. By the way, back then, there was no, uh, even that it was a teenage sex comedy was, you know, regardless of anything. Uh, because back then, when they made a movie, they that movie was made to be in movie theaters. It wasn't made to sit on the shelf somewhere. Because it cost so much money to shoot on film. And it was an enormous undertaking. Even a film as, as you know, small as Cave Girl still would have cost half a million dollars. Yeah, it was it was it was pretty fast. But, you know, I try not to give myself too much credit. You know, I think it was all meant to be. And Cave Girl really had to exist because Cave Girl introduced me to a great friend of mine, Chuck Williams. Uh, he saw it at some bar California where he lived. Because he had two sons, where his mom was, they was visiting. He came to California, was picking up some girl for acting class, and her roommate said, "What did you do this weekend?" He goes, "Oh, I saw this movie. You know, it wasn't really good, but the guy in it was funny. His name was Dan Roebuck." And the guy goes, "Oh, I know Dan Roebuck." Now, at that point, I would have known 
70 people, not 7 million, 70. But he was a guy that I knew through uh, another guy who worked or lived in my apartment building. So he put me and Chuck in touch. And then Chuck worked for a manager named Wayne Rice. And then uh, I met Wayne Rice uh, and Chuck and Wayne managed me for a bit. And then Wayne got me uh, the audition for River's Edge, which was completely and absolutely one million times the opposite of Cave Girl. And so my second movie was River's Edge. Crazy. It's like you look back at River's Edge and everybody in there is somebody or on the way to becoming somebody. And it's just such a tight cast and just such a wonderful, wonderful film. Yeah, I look back at that as like the extraordinary, the extraordinary luck that uh, that I that I, I had a big part of that ensemble. Um, I mean, can you imagine? I'm so in the midst of all that other stuff, the theater and whatnot, I was never the theater was uh, a means to the end and, and remained a means to the end, frankly, for my entire life uh, in that uh, I was I'm not your normal theater actor. I couldn't tell you the difference between Henry Four or Henry Five. In fact, when I make fun of, you know, you know, really good actors, I'm only making fun of them because I'm jealous, let's be honest. But if I'm making fun of them, it's always like I was doing I was doing this speech in Henry Four. No, it was Henry Five. And on the whole, wait, no, no, I'm sorry. It was Henry Ford. I apologize. I, I, I was doing it in repertory with Richard Gore. You know, there's always some, something that I don't understand what they're talking about. But I, I did, um, theater was a, a, a means to the end. So what I'm saying is I, the actor on the set of River's Edge was there because he loved movies and television. So that I had direct access to Dennis Hopper only 10 years after the making of Apocalypse Now, uh, or even less. No, that would have been seven years after the making of Apocalypse Now. And like that movie was, you know, a monumental film that I had seen by that point probably 15 times. You know, I was just such a fan. Well, that's the thing is that I appreciate your fandom like i've seen you at conventions and stuff and you're just there as a dude you're not there like doing panels and signing autographs and stuff it's just like yeah and there's dan roebuck watch walking around yeah i no, because i'm a fan i used to be able to say i would never do it and then i was talking to doing it i sat down to take the money for the autographs and i it, it was reprehensible to me reprehensible to me because when I was a little boy, the movie fan would write to Vincent Price. And, you know, he never wrote me back a note that said, please send $20 to Vincent Price would just send you his autograph, you know, or Roddy McDowell would send you his autograph. It, it just, it was just how they did it. So I've done it. I've taken the money and I, you know, I, I got kids in college, so I won't say I would do it again, but you know, I made it so hard for them at this Walker Stalker convention. I made them put the lady who was taking the money like 20 feet away from me. I, I just didn't, I, I was so grossed out by it. So yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just a fan. That's really what it comes down to. Like, look, are you kidding me? Here I'm on these, like Rob Zombie, I've got Michael Myers killing me in a movie. That's not lost to me. Now, how I think of the, the kid, Dan Roebuck, 19, what is it, 79. I'm watching Halloween at the Boyd Theater with my good buddy, Scott Brunel. And what if I would have turned to Scott and said, uh, you know, 30 years from now, that guy's going to kill me in a movie. Cause that, who would have ever known there would be more than one movie, let alone 14? You know, the, the first time I saw Phantasm, I loved that movie. Did I know one day that spear was going to bore in my head? Like, 
you know, I, I've I've gone from the fan to the fan in the in the story. I've gone from the reader of famous monsters to being in famous monsters. That's there's no bragging in that. There's only gratitude in it. That that my life has been blessed to the point where I get to take part in the very exact thing that led me to it. The very exact thing: reading famous monsters, like discovering. Like in that, uh, my percolating mind, I'm doing impressions, right? So I'm doing impressions and I'm watching these monster movies and I'm realizing that's Boris Karloff. But no, look how different he looks here. That's Belagosi. Now he looks different here. Here's, you know, any, I mean, geez, any, any of those actors interchanging the characters and monsters and that it's all acting. And then I'm doing impressions. So I'm starting to hone in on the films of John Wayne. And I'm starting to hone in on the comedy of Jack Benny. And I'm starting to put it all together in my brain as it's coalescing. And and now here we are talking about it. And and I'm I'm a blessed person that I can reflect on it and say that. Think of this. I'm a little boy. I'm doing impressions. And my mom, my mom's a great mom. My mom's amazing. And so she goes, well, you're an impressionist. I should take you to see Rich Little. So she takes me to see Rich Little at the Valley Forge Music Fair. And uh, that was in Devon, Pennsylvania. I remember all that. And I got to see Rich Little perform. And back in those days, you know, at the end of the show, you could go meet Rich Little, meeting people from TV. I, that's astounding. So I go and I, I meet Rich Little, and he signs my book. And then that would have been 77. I would know. Yeah, 77. So in 95, that's not even 20 years later, 18 years later, I'm doing the late shift, and Rich Little is playing Johnny Carson. I'm playing I mean, and we're both doing impressions in a movie. It's mind-boggling. It makes me a little fun thinking about. Your Jay Leno is so good. Uh, I years ago I saw Jeff Daniels uh, talking to uh, he uh, spoke in front of a class, and he had just done Jay Leno on I think Saturday Night Live, and he had a few words that he would use to get into Jay Leno's mode of speech. How did you approach doing the impression of Jay Leno? The very first thing to say is they didn't hire me to do an impression of him. They hired me to do, create a character who assimilated him. It's different, obviously. You know, if, if you study the greatest impressionists, they're, it's all about ticks. It's about ticks and vernacular. That's how Rich Little would move between Ronald Reagan and, you know, Richard Nixon. It would be how they stood and, you know, with their body language and everything. Uh, Jay Leno, I was just acting as a character. The character just happened to be Jay Leno. So I would listen to, I would tape, I mean, this was an analog time. So I would tape his recording of, I would, because my call was usually 3.30 or 4 in the morning for the makeup. So before I went to bed, um, I would, my wife would tape the monologue for me. And then I would listen to it on headphones on the way to the, to the studio for makeup. I mean, that's all, that's really all I, I kind of did. It is unfortunate, you know, with the rev- an actor's, he can't fear reviews because, you know, you're, you're asking for it. You know, you, you could, I could have been an accountant. Nobody would review my work except the guy hiring me or the, or, or the federal government. But, uh, as an, as an actor, you're just up for review. And I've always been saddened by, and it still happens when people do the reviews of the late shift. They uh, they always swipe the makeup, which I think the makeup is as good as it could have been. Uh, it, it, and it was really honed down. We 
there's there's really two makeups. They ripped it apart by the second day and redid it. It was a very expensive process. And I think that the makeup is really well done. You can't see makeup lines or anything. You can't see. And, and But everyone always goes to the makeup. I say that if you didn't know what I looked like and I was just that guy in that movie, you'd think they just found a guy like Jay Leno. So nobody ever really, actors, actors do, gentlemen like you might, hopefully you enjoyed the performance. But, you know, the job was just to be Jay Leno. And I've always loved Jay Leno. And by the way, since the making of that movie, Jay Leno has always been very gracious to me. I'm an easygoing guy who uh, likes when things work out. And I believe that our whole process here is that we're interacting to move forward. We're here to help each other. Um, and Jay Leno has never said no to me. Uh, I produced an animated Christmas movie. He even narrated it. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's called Christmas is Here Again. But David Letterman was not only, you know, immutable about the movie. He was, uh, you know, a downright ash about it complained about John Michael Higgins' performance, and John Michael Higgins is a great actor. Like, if you're going to have an actor play you, and you're going to have an actor as good as John Michael Higgins play you, and you're still not happy, well, then you're you're just not happy. You're a miserable person. I always found that he was, it was all about insulting people, and then, like, like so many people who set themselves up as, you know, the I'm the guy who gets to insult everybody, then there he is, you know, like sexually harassing his employees and totally living a, a life that's not in line with the highfalutin stand that he took in his comedy. Everyone else had to adhere to evidently his his rules and regulations, but he didn't have to. He was above them. And there he brings John Michael, tries to publicly humiliate him on national television. Look at it. It did. He brought. He never brought him out. It's John Michael Higgins plays me in the movie. He made him sit there and he never brought him out and said, well, maybe you can maybe you can meet him in the lobby after the show. That's the kind of person David Letterman was. Jay Leno, you know, who has never publicly said how much he enjoyed what I did in the movie, has said it certainly privately to me and many other people. Plus, he was there anytime I asked any favor about anything. He helped me. Because uh, he's a regular human being, a good guy, a good person. I've, I've always been disappointed in David Letterman and would never, you know, I love I love that now, you know, he's there's some other new version of David Letterman. All of it confuses me. You mentioned uh, Phantasm earlier. Was Bubba Hotep, was that your first time working with Don Coscarelli? Uh, yeah, I knew Don. We have a mutual friend, the stuntman, Bob Ivey, who played Bubba Hotep, was my stuntman for years. He and I met as extras. I knew, I knew Don Coscarelli because I was on the set, I think, of Phantasm 4, I think. And that's where I met him. And we liked each other. He's a great guy. Oh, my God, is he a great guy. I guess when the time came to use me, he used me. And then I like being in his movies. He was very, he felt very bad about uh, making me larger than in uh, John Dies because I had to wear that mask. And, you know, I was like, no, no, look, Rodney McDowell wore a mask. But, you know, everybody knew him because of his voice. Oh, wait a minute. I'm doing that weird in uh, time. Do you, do you watch that movie? Do you like that one? I love that movie. We did an episode on that a few years ago. Yeah. All right, and you know I'm the guy in the mask at the end. Yes, your voice in that is fantastic. Yeah, so I, you know, I was like, "Why did I talk like this?" And he was, I was like, "Uh, sure, you know." If people like Rob Zombie, there's, uh, this is why the impression stuff always. Thank God I had it in my back pocket. He said he calls me one day. He goes, "Hey Dan, yeah, it's Rob. Do you want to play the devil in a rock video?" And I was like, "Ugh, 
God. I do believe there's a force, an evil force in the world, and I, I see malevolence. And I didn't want to really give it, uh, I didn't want to give it form, but I really, really like Rob Zombie. So he said, do you want to play the devil? And I was like, can I play him like Paul Lynn? And he goes, sure. So that's why if you watch Teenage Rock God, I'm like, I'm the devil. Oh, hi. Like, I just thought if I could emasculate the devil, that would make me happy. That's why the devil talks like Paul Lynn, but looks like the devil. You've been kind of a rabbit's foot for Rob Zombie. You've been in almost everything he's done. Yeah, everything but the first movie, although he does, you know, he does cut me out with relish. I mean, I'm, I am... I am often cut out of stuff, but we have a good time making it. And, and I do actually talk about that in the book. In one of the rules, it's like, just because they're your friends, don't think they won't cut you out. In fact, your friend is the first guy you cut out because you know that you'll be like, hey, man, you understand I have to do what's best for the movie, right? But a complete stranger may not be amused like that. Often Rob cuts me out, but, you know, I sneak back into the special features or whatever. And even when he cut me out of Halloween, uh, like he gave me such a great thing to do in Halloween too. Like I, I would have much preferred what I did in Halloween too to what what we shot for Halloween, given the choice. And in, in the next movie, I'm playing more screen again, so that's even a treat because I played more screen in the first movie, uh, in well, in Devil's Rejects, and I played more screen in El Super Bisto, and now uh, I just play more screen in Three from Hell. So that's kind of fun to play the same guy to play a guy and then play him in a cartoon and then play him in a movie again. That's, I can't be a lot of actors who've gotten to do that. Yeah, we keep, uh, I was just talking with a friend of mine. I'm just like, didn't they die at the end of that Devil's Rejects? I, I still think Devil's Rejects is the best thing that Rob Zombie has done. Yeah, it's so, like, I went to see the, the first movie. and I knew he was a great director when uh, Bill Mosley kills the cop and Rob hung on the shot for like 30 seconds. And it was so suspenseful and horrible. Oh, that was Dave Sheridan. I said the cop. I think that was Dave Sheridan, uh, the comedian. And I just thought he was a good director. And I like he always, you know, lets us look at Sherry's butt, which, you know, I'm not unhappy about. Uh, yeah, I, I think he's a great director. I honestly, we, he and I, and Dwayne Whitaker, who plays Reverend Osborne in, in, in my movie, the three of us uh, were hoping to get this movie made about uh, Sam Sherman and Al Adamson, uh, which is a movie that would have... I, I think Rob is such a great director. I'm not saying he's wasting on horror films. Obviously, that's not the case. But I, I know that horror films aren't the only thing he must do. He has great talent. So I am uh, I look forward to what else he creates. Uh, he's, I know he's got a movie about Groucho Marx in, uh, in development. So I think I, I just think he can do anything, frankly. And I, I like directors like Ang Lee, who, you know, this movie is different than that movie, different than that movie, everything's different tone, different uh, style. If uh, if I can work towards something, I would certainly work toward that. The the next movie coming out of our out of out of our uh, our group here, you know, Getting Grace was a story about a teenage girl dying of cancer who is an allegory for God's grace. She changes the people's lives around her as as they accept her friendship. And the next movie is a comedy about redemption. Although Getting Grace is funny. I mean, it, there's a lot of laughs in it. And I sort of, I'm not just saying that. People laugh a lot when they see it. Because uh, it's constructed that way. The next movie will be, it's called The Hail Mary. It'll be a, you know, it'll be a, a comedy. It's more of an outright comedy. So uh, I want, and then the next one is 
you know, going to be different in tone than that. So I just like, I like that. I think as a director, that's your greatest gift when you can, you know, move between genres. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, look at, you know, Scorsese with just the amount of different things that he's done over the years. I mean, everybody remembers the gangster films, but, you know, come on, Age of Innocence, uh, Hugo, so many different things. The guy can do anything he wants to. Yeah, and it's funny you say that. I've got to get on a plane a little bit. I downloaded Silence, which I hadn't seen. Yeah. So uh, that's interesting you say that because I do, I do like, uh, I mean, you know, I do like his, his other movies. I'm intrigued by Scorsese because he's, he's flummoxed sometimes, just like a great director like Sidney Lumet, to have Dog Day Afternoon and then have like a movie misfire right after. You can't blame him for trying, but Sidney Lumet, you know, is, is sort of insurmountable. If you Dog Day Afternoon, Murder on the Orient Express, people will find two more different movies than that, and they were made within three years of each other. Or even Steven Spielberg with Jurassic Park, which, uh, you know, he's editing while he's shooting Schindler's List. You, you know, it's kind of, yeah, schizophrenic and, and, and joyful. Well, before I forget, tell me about this Al Adamson project. I got this idea for a movie about Al Adamson because that story is so horrible, isn't it? Like, here's a guy who made all these, you know, movies filled with murder and mayhem. What happens to him? He's bludgeoned to death by his handyman and burned in concrete in his house. Terrible. I went to write another movie. It's very odd how these things are. I went to write another movie. Al Adamson has always intrigued me. I can't say his movies were good, but they certainly were something I watched when I was younger. And uh, I was writing this other movie many years ago called Taking Stock, about an actor who couldn't get a job in New York, but he got a summer stock job. And um, I, I, was, I went to this theater in Utah to write it, because that's where it took place. Uh, in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Utah, my, my wife was going stir crazy because I was writing, I was in this theater, this theater in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of this ranch. There's a theater. And I was, I would write the movie at the theater, uh, and she would stay home. And so she, she was like, I got to get out of here. So I took her to dinner one night. And on the way to dinner, there was this, uh, thing about riding horses, but there was no number. So I went in this motel in Utah to ask about the, you know, did he know who the horseback riding place was? The guy goes, no, nah, that's, you know, that sign's been there for a while, but nobody, no. He goes, where are you from? And I said, L.A. And he said, well, I used to live in L.A. I said, oh, because what are you doing out here? And I said, I'm writing a movie. And he said, oh, I worked in Hollywood for years. And so I said, oh, yeah, oh, wow, wow. And I said, he goes, yeah, I directed I directed some movies. And we talked for a bit, but he had somebody was trying to check in. so. You know, I, I, I said, well, I'll let you get back to your business. And I went, went outside. I was halfway to the car and I went, Oh my God. And I went back in and I said, you're Al Adamson. He goes, you know me? I said, you guy killer person. Are you kidding? So that's how I met Al Adamson briefly for a moment. I went back the next day to the hotel to get dinner and he wasn't there. But by the way, that was at the exact same time Regina Carroll would have been very sick. He wasn't there the next night and then we left. And then, you know, a few years later, he was gone. But that's my brush with brush with that, you know. So I love that idea. And I love the idea of the, the I like the idea that a guy's making movies about horror. All he really wants to do is make movies about musicals. That's what he loved the most. And then he's, you know, uh, it essentially is you what you what you place into the world is what you receive from the world. You reap what you sow. 
So that was that. And, you know, Rob loved the story and he loved the movie. And I think a few times we've talked about maybe moving forward, but there's a guy like, like Rob Zombie, you, you don't try to corral him. He's a very creative person. And that's one of the things about creative people is that, you know, their creativity is pulled one direction or another. And uh, so we have never made it. doesn't mean we won't ever make it, but it's pretty neat researching it. And we got Sam Sherman, you know, we wrote it. It was myself and Dwayne Whitaker, the actor and writer, and a guy named Sam Borowski who uh, came aboard through Sam Sherman, who, who's friends of his. And he asked him to be part of the writing team, too. So we all three wrote it together. Seem to remember. Well, yeah, you have been in uh, Elvis Presley, right? Yeah, and Eddie Presley. Eddie Presley. Yeah, do you remember that? Eddie Presley. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dwayne and I. I mean, there's actually Eddie Presley is unique because it's Dwayne and myself and Harry James who plays Mrs. Bernard in, in my movie. So, and my brother-in-law shot for a day when he first moved to Hollywood. He shot for a day on Eddie Presley. And I think there was one other Eddie Presley connection because uh, we showed the movie in uh, in Atlanta and Jeff Burr, who directed it, was there. And uh, I thought, oh, God, there was it's just weird that there's all these Eddie Presley people in the same place. How did you get involved with the uh, Monsterama series? So Monsterama came out of the fact that I made a, a documentary called Halloween Happy Haunting America with Chuck Williams, my, my buddy Chucky. Uh, and uh, Kevin Burns, who uh, does a lot of A&E bios, and he does now, you know, some alien show, and he's one of the producers on the new Lost in Space TV show. Kevin uh, was doing the, the shows for Monsterama, so that was like uh, like Voom TV. It was it was the advent of high definition on, on your home television set. So they were looking for high-def content. So uh, Kevin brought me on. I mean, I had a good time with those. And it was essentially Kevin and I picked, uh, and Taylor White, who worked with us on the first few, just picked like these subjects that we loved the most, you know, Aurora Monsters and Monsters and Planet of the Apes and Don Post Masks. And, you know, we, we had these high-def cameras and we shoot them. They were essentially 3D, like it was like looking at a toy in 3D. And then, you know, this visage of the family of the opera was, you know, they're, 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 uh, <clears throat> let me tell you this. The fact that I grew up loving Don Post masks and there's no information on Don Post masks. And then I got to be the guy who told the story of Don Post Studios. And I've done it time and time again. I mean, I did it in Halloween, the Happy Haunt of America. I did it again in the Monsteramas. And I produced this book that Black Sparrow put out. Lee Lambert wrote this wonderful book about the uh, the history of Don Post Studios. And uh, we, you know, we used my collection as the basis of a lot of the photos. And uh, Lee did an astounding job researching it and writing it. I mean, a job that nobody could have taken on who didn't love Monster Masks as much as he did. It's not even, it's whatever, what's greater than a blessing? And I don't know if anything is greater than a blessing, but that I get to actually be part of creating in the genre or field that brought me to this uh, is kind of extraordinary, but it's probably, I bet, ultimately, Michelangelo painted the same kind of paintings he liked as a child. So I don't think, uh, and I like how I, I, I immediately, you know, I connected myself with Michelangelo, like somehow we're similar. Yeah, that's pretty slick. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, he had the Sistine Chapel, I have Monsteramas, 
and of course getting grace. So they were very similar artistic wise. I used to do, I know, you know, when you talk about, I read famous monsters, you know, Steven Spielberg, Stephen King, me. Like, it's really like a, a ham fisted attempt to ingratiate yourself to a level way above where you belong. So I know that. Well, when you were growing up, were you watching The Fugitive and then you get to be in The Fugitive? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Sure. Why? Sure. I watched Richard Kimball. And, and uh, I mean, I, you know, all that stuff was on on uh, syndication when by the time I was a kid, uh, you know, because I was a kid while I was on too young. But I mean, I even see growing up loving Frankenstein and that, you know, eventually I'm killed by Michael Myers, who's like the modern Frankenstein. And I, we may have even talked about that earlier, even like, like I'm watching Michael Myers in 1977. And then, you know, in 19 or in 2012, he's killing me. And it's, it's really only 35 years later. And I'm part of the story. Uh, I, I think I'm, I'm redundant. I think I may have mentioned that before, but I mean, it's really crazy. It's really crazy. Crazier than, than, than it happening would be me not understanding what a gift it is to me, which, uh, I do understand what a gift it is to me completely, absolutely, and with great gratitude. So what inspires the Daniel Roebuck, who's made this whole series of Monsterama films, makes uh, Dr. Shocker's Vault of Horror, what leads you to want to direct and and make Getting Grace? Gosh, you know, honestly, what a good question. So people have said, I'm surprised you didn't make a horror movie first. I wasn't surprised I didn't make a horror movie first. In the first place, a horror movie is very difficult. To try to scare someone in this day and age when every almost every single thing has been done that could be done, it's hard to really get someone to jump. Easier, I thought, for me to get someone to cry or to laugh. I looked for a story because I really wanted to move into this. And I, I had my eyes, you know, my, my heart was open to me writing a story initially. And then this, when, when the script of Getting Grace, Jeff, Jeff Lewis's script was called Bending Spoons, when it found me, um, I knew immediately it was my, meant to be. It was my, it was my purpose. It's hard to really phantom that, like someone saying that. But like the other stuff I talk about, like knowing that I was going to be an actor from the time I was a little boy or knowing I was going to be on TV, I just knew that that was the thing. Getting Grace was the movie I was going to make. Um, even though it was called Bending Spoons at the time. I just loved that it was a story that had never been told before. Where, where would you have ever seen a movie about a, a dying child teaching a funeral director how to celebrate life? It's inconceivable. And that's the, the brilliance in Jeff's original uh, proposition of a story. Like this, the, just the jumping off point is great. And then I, I took opportunity and Jeff took opportunity as we refined the story uh, I just wanted it to be more of an allegory for how I really feel in the world, which is, and I didn't, I didn't anticipate, by the way, becoming any kind of missionary. And then one day I realized this might be a mission. I try to be the best person I can. I fail always. I, I, I'm a human being. I do the best I can. And I wanted to make a movie where people were doing the best they could, but they needed the help of other people like we all do to get through this. You know, we're, we're, we're taught this new ideology, this weird so sociology that's come out of God knows where that, well, maybe it's Nietzsche. I don't know. Man is Superman and that we're, you know, we're, it's only, it's only about making ourselves the best person we could be. And, um, you know, 
rising to the top or whatever, when the reality is that we need each other. But Getting Grace is a, is a movie about people helping people move forward. That's what it is. So that's what I wanted to tell. It was a story that was good, inherently good. I didn't want to scare people. I didn't want to saw anybody's head off. People are sawing. What, what more horror do we need? There are people in this world sawing people's heads off already. I don't need to see it in a movie. That's why I don't understand, you know, every one of these Marvel movies has like a building crumbling or, you know, and, you know, so I've seen what happens, as you have too, when a building falls, nobody comes out alive. Uh, but in these movies, people, you know, Perry White steps out of the collapsed building. How? What? What are you talking about? And it's all like, it's the horrors around us. We need to be reminded that there's good around us too. That's what we need to be shown from my point of view. Well, when you get that script, and I'm curious what that's like versus Bending Spoons versus Getting Grace. Bending Spoons is Getting Grace without the clothing, you know, without the nice hat and the new shoes and, you know, the the the, the lovely suit coat or dress or whatever you want to use in, in your personal visual metaphor. Jeff's original script had Grace, Venus, Bill, Reverend Osborne, and Ron. And and let's say I would guess of the original script, 15% of the original dialogue is still in the movie. Um, but um, Jeff Jeff did not provide. He kind of was, it was a I guess you would call it a jumping off point. And it was an award winning script, by the way. I have no denigration of the script. It, that script led to everything else. But in describing, it was a script, but it wasn't a, the movie I wanted to make. So to, together. We figured out how to make it the movie, you know, that I wanted to make, which was, you know, to, to give years and years of your life uh, for these things is uh, you better really, really want to make it. So, you know, the onus was on me to make it the kind of story I wanted to tell specifically, but I couldn't have done anything without Jeff Lewis at all. So that's, you know, we are the co-writers of, of the script and, and, you know, that's, I, I just always want to stress that because it says written. People say it was written, directed by, and I always say it was co-written. I write it. I wrote it with another buddy, and who I didn't know, who is my buddy now, but you know, an astoundingly talented man. Well, not only do you co-write it and direct it, but then you're there starring in. Is that just to cut costs so you don't have to pay another actor? <laughs> I like to think I was the best actor for the role, but eh, another. Um, you know, honestly. To, to be uh, to be an actor of an age is, um, you know, I've always worked. I'm sure I always will work, but uh, things are a little different in Hollywood now. And, uh, you know, they're, they're really attempting to cast cross-culturally. And I, you know, the one thing I can't not be is, you know, who I am and the color I am and the age I am. So, uh, you know, I figured I'll write the part that I want to play um, specifically. And Bill, you know, is the, it's hard to be the straight man any, any time, but Andy Griffiths realized after like the ninth episode of the Andy Griffiths show that if he was the straight man, everybody else was funnier. So I, I kind of took that role on in this. However, uh, I did give myself moments of physical comedy, which I think God certainly blessed me with an ability to, to do, but I never got a chance to do it. Like they don't write physical gags for 55 year old men because mostly they're afraid they're going to throw out their backs and sue you. So I had to write that for myself. 
it was really nice seeing Dana Ashbrook in this. I usually only see him in Twin Peaks, so to see him in something else, it was very refreshing. In Jeff's original script, and in the script that we you know, produced after, Ron Christopher, I always saw him as like, um, you know, I didn't see him as Uri Geller specifically, but I did see him as like this together, like he just was the antithesis of Bill. He was, in our casting, I was like, he has to be better looking than me. Well, that's not hard, but he has to be better looking than me, and he has to uh, have a, a sex appeal, a machismo that I don't have to make the joke laugh or last. And that, you know, we were really, you had to, we were earning the end where Grace was using him to manipulate Bill, and uh, she could only do that with a guy who was, you know, sexier than Bill. And uh, I, I mean, hopefully, I'm not giving too much of the story away. Anyway. So there was a kind of actor that I wanted, and we had two actors that we uh, offered it to, and then another that I was uh, very much considering. Uh, and then Dana Ashbrook, Marsha Deadline kept saying, Dana Ashbrook's going to audition. I was like, I don't give me a, I don't want to see Dana Ashbrook. Dana, you know, I don't want to see Dana Ashbrook's audition, for God's sake. Like, I don't think he's the actor I need. Well, you know, shut my mouth. When we saw his audition, all the people who had to make the decision. It was so obvious that my idea of the part was wrong and Dana Ashbrook's idea of the part was right. Now, that's a big deal for an actor who's a director because I want to be that guy. I want to be the guy that convinces them to go the opposite way. And many times, I know many times in my career, based on, you know, while we're making the movie, the conversations I have with directors and producers, when they say, you were the last guy we thought would be playing this part, but we're so glad to have you. That's what Dana Ashbrook was. Like, he is so good in the part and so, like, organic. Isn't he, doesn't he seem like a completely real guy? A little lost. He's a little, unfortunately, he's missing a scene uh, that, you know, sometimes you cut for pace. And there is a scene that explained a little better why he was lost and why she, she had to find him. But I, I just didn't have the time for it in the movie. Uh, it was one hospital scene too many, unfortunately. So I, I owe him that. You know, it'll be on the special features. I hope, you know, the deleted scene that explains why Dan Ashbrook is the way he is. But, yeah, I'm in love with a guy. As However, a man can be in love with a man, although I guess uh, a man can be in love with a man. That's something that's been proven. Uh, but he's, I'm not generally in love with men, but I am in love with Dan Ashbrook. This is a weird thing to say, but I really liked your locations. I felt a real authenticity, like a small town feel from this movie that really came through very well. Oh, thank you. Well, it was shot in my hometown. It was shot in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And one of the reasons it was shot there, because it wasn't written to be shot there, was because in the first place, I knew how great the town looked. So that's the first thing I knew. The second thing is I knew that I would get support in my home community that I might not get had I shot it where I am here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, because nobody knows me in Fayetteville, Arkansas. But in Bethlehem, uh, it's nice. People know me, and I, I do whatever I can for the city whenever they ask me to. And then the third thing about it is Bethlehem was Bethlehem Steel. That's what it was. And, you know, we lost the steel, and everybody thought, well, that's that. You know, goodbye, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Well, I mean, if you go into this town now, it's that town you see. It's gorgeous. It's reborn. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a huge, a thriving art community, thriving art community. 
And I just thought it was great that I had an old-fashioned town being reborn, and I also had an old-fashioned guy living in the old-fashioned town who was being reborn. And I do, I do think it makes a difference because we get so used to seeing everything shot in L.A. or Vancouver, you know, pretending to be somewhere in the United States, and it all looks the same. But Bethlehem looks like like you're in a you you're in a real town. And I mean, the allegory of God's grace, you know, then is also, um, you know, ho- hopefully not bludgeoned. But I mean, the fact that the town is represented as Bethlehem is not not on purpose. That sounds like a double. I guess that is a double negative, but it's on purpose. Not not on purpose. Me, that's right. Um, but again, you know, I'm, I'm here. I am trying to make a, a movie that represents my my personal viewpoint that faith is necessary for all of us. Uh, and I, without dictating what kind of faith, but it is necessary to have something greater than us to work toward and work together toward, work toward together, I think is correct. But, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to hit anybody over the head with anything. I just want them to be entertained by the movie I made. Daniel, they always say never work with kids and animals, and you've got so many kids in this movie. <laughs> so many kids. Uh, so many, so many kids. So, uh, I'd like to brag about those kids too. Never has any one of them been in a movie before. Some of them had never even been in a play before. And they are such nice little boys and girls. And I was always, when it was the day we would, we would be driving to work and my wife would say, we have kids working today. And I'd be like, Oh, thank God. You know, cause they don't, I don't have to explain anything to them. Like a- adult actors, they, they actually expect you to know what the hell you're talking about. Like they, they really, you know, when they say, well, what does this line mean? Boy, I better know what that line means. The kids, they're just like, oh, you know, when they spray that stuff in your hair, it looks like it's on fire. You know, they're totally enter- entertained by, you know, the machinations just to make me look like a normal human being on camera. That was always enough to keep them entertained. But um, I just love them all. And I went out of my way. Geez, I, I you know, like, I, I hope I don't get hate mail for this. I didn't really want to see, you know, we live in uh, a, like a bedroom community of New York City. So we do have some like kid actors, you know, professional kid actors from Broadway, et cetera, in town. And it was really the last thing I wanted was a kid actor. I just wanted kids. Really, you know what I wanted? And I figured it out and I figured it out on this movie. What you really want in a kid actor is an old soul. That's what you got to find. You got to find the kid who's not a kid, but already... I don't. I asked my mom once, was I ever a crappy kid actor? She said, you were never a kid. And so that that absolutely, I realized, is what what exactly attracted me to these kids. They're, they were just all regular, normal kids who made us laugh, and they all took to it. Like, they all were naturals. And when you watch the movie, if you get to watch it again, look how many times the kids are in It's a Wonder, where I didn't intercut. So... You know, I had kids who didn't have the, the the blessing that I had. They didn't get to watch Art Carney or, you know, uh, or Jonathan Winters or Phil Silvers or they didn't get, they didn't know what a double take was. You know, they, they didn't get to see what a pratfall was. So, you know, they had to be taught all of that, all that timing where one kid's moving in, the other kid's moving out, the other kid's talking. They, you know, that was all had, that all had to be conducted uh, and then captured in one frame of, you know, one, one shot. Uh, and I just think they do such a good job on it. Tell me about Madeline Dundon and how she came to the role. Madeline Dundon, uh, where do I start with Madeline Dundon? Like, 
I don't know. I don't know. Like she's a miracle, you know. When people watch this movie, they're going to see something that you you'd have to go back to like James Dean and Giant or and well, I said Giant actually probably this the other movie was first to match. But like to see an actor in their very first role and know that they could be a movie star forever. That's what Madeline Duncan is. She's a movie star forever. I just happened to be lucky enough to get her the first time. So I auditioned a lot of kids. Uh, all the little girls had to promise that they would shave their head if they got the part. Um, so some were like, yeah, you're, you know, I'll audition, but I won't shave my head. Well, don't audition. Right. You know, we don't, cause we're not time for that. So, um, I'd seen Maddie about six months before we started shooting. I went to my high school, Bethlehem Catholic, my alma mater, and they had redone the auditorium. So they had this, uh, you know, the principal said, I had this, I got some theater kids to show you how I thought. That make you comfortable. And Maddie was one of them. And now I kind of, you know, knew Maddie. I met her briefly as a, when she was about 11 or 12. But what was striking was she's, I knew her family. I directed her father to play when he was 13 years old. That's how long I've known the Duncan family. Her father was now a retired lieutenant colonel from the, uh, from the army. So I knew her dad since I was a little boy and he was a few years younger than me. We used to direct these, uh, CYO one act plays and, so that's how I knew her dad. And then, uh, you know, when she came out, I was like, oh, my God. And she looked just like her aunt. Uh, so she looked just like the family did that I remember for 50 years. Uh, and I spent that day with her. And my she was just as nutty as my own kid, who the character is, you know, as Grace evolved, she evolved more and more to be like my daughter every day. She's like her so much. In fact, I was afraid when we were shooting the movie that when Grace came to work on the movie and I'd have the kid playing essentially Grace and the real Grace together, I was afraid I might create some kind of black hole in the universe. Like, you know, and Gozer was going to be like the State Puff Marshmallow. Like, who knew what would happen when I put them together? And uh, they actually, Madeline calls my daughter OG or Original Grace. And then uh, Madeline is Movie Grace. Too. That's what they call each other. So, I mean, like, look at her. Like, who else Who else could it be? And I, I did have a... It's funny how these epiphanies come to you, in the, you know, when there's a moment of clarity. I realized one day that maybe it took so long that people... How come it took seven years to get the movie made? I don't know, maybe I had to wait for Madeline Dundon. Because who else could it have been? No one. No one. It was always going to be Marsha. It was always going to be Dwayne. It was always going to be me. But I didn't know who who was going to be Grace. And Dwayne even said, you know, you're a moron. You think you're going to, how are you going to find that character there? Uh, and, you know, it's proven one thing. Very, And it's not just the kids. There's a lot of adults in the movie who, who don't, who've never been in a movie before. You, you, you hopefully can't tell because of, you know, the great performances they gave. But, you know, you I, I, I know we need movie stars. And, and I know, you know, on some levels I qualify as a movie star. And other levels, I don't. You always need movie stars, but but you can find actors anywhere. It's not you, you can you can find them in Michigan as easily as you could find them in Los Angeles or, or New York. Just because that's where we we tend to go doesn't mean that's where 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 we all acting is. It's not in those two places. Well, how did you get all the money to de-age yourself for that scene when you play? When it's- <laughs> Did you like that? Yeah, I mean, that was honestly, amazing. I, that was better than Jeff Bridges in the Tron movie. Right. right. It was so right where it was so creepy. It was like, uh, 
It's kind of creepy. Right there. I mean, now, and already think of that. That's Tron movie's eight years, seven years old. Now it would be, you know, anyway, they can do that stuff now that you almost don't notice. Yeah, I, I like, you know, my joke on that, on my son Buster playing me was, you've heard the term the casting couch. That may, that may take it to the nth degree because, you know, I actually made the kid. Is that the casting bed? <laughs> um, I said one night, I said, I cast that kid nine and a half or 19 and a half years earlier on a cold winter night. He's so good, though, I think. I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud of him. He's not an actor. He's a person. He's a kid. He's a going to be in the Coast Guard is what he wants to do. Not an actor. He did that as a favor for me. And I knew he would be amazing. And aside from this being so really that that bill, bill 20 years ago, you know, if he didn't sell that moment, that moment in the movie that we won't tell people because we want them to go see Getting Grace. But if he didn't sell that moment, then the rest of the movie, from my character's point of view, would have made no sense. So that's the weight that he had on his shoulders, which both the, the guy who directed him and the guy who fathered him was smart enough to not tell him before we rolled the cameras. Yeah, no pressure, son. Yeah, no pressure. So we just, I was like, you can't look, you just, you can't, you can't do this wrong. I said, you'll be perfect. And uh, whispered one or two things in his ear before the last take. And it's, you know, I think it's really subtly, I mean, I'm just, you know, that sounds like a bragging dad, but I'm allowed to be a bragging dad. It's my son. It is funny to be in the theater and have, I hear people go, <laughs> like, what? Because of the way, you know, the way we kind of manipulate the shots. So it's a bit shocking. Well, how can people see Getting Grace? If they go to gettinggracethemovie.com, they can see where we're playing. Now, an independent movie, uh, just to get it on the big screen, is miraculous. It's just miraculous. Um, and so we've opened in 60 theaters. We're opening in six more this weekend. And it's just hard to keep the screens. You know, we're up against Ready Player One. And in some of our theaters, they literally gave us one showing a day so that Ready Player One could have 34 showings a day. So you really had to try to find getting great to see getting grace. It'll be uh, playing around the country, art houses from this point on for the next few months. And then we'll be on home video in no in December, excuse me, in September, and then uh, Netflix, et cetera, in November. But I would love for people to try to find it, and we're really going to try to play as many art houses as we can to keep it to keep it in the public eye. Now I'm working, you know, moving on to the next movie, um, which is also not a horror movie, uh, but it, it's also completely out of, you know, it's a it's a, a football movie um and if i said to my football coach from when i played football hey i'm going to make a football movie 40 years from now he would have tackled me get that uh, robuck are you out of your mind i i saw him actually we go to the lehigh game he goes to the games like and my dad goes to the lehigh games which is a college in bethlehem and i saw mr shunk i was like mr shunk oh my gosh mr shunk that's a pretty good player right he goes yeah you're a good player i said hold on let me let me videotape you saying that for my kids. And then when I rolled the video, I said, Mr. Shuck, was I a good football player? And he goes, eh. Yeah. So anyway, so getting grace, please, you know, keep, uh, and that's the genius thing about this new way media work. Like somebody might find this, this, this podcast in the future and they might say, Oh, getting grace. Oh, I want to, I want to find that. And, and I would imagine they can. It is funny, isn't it? That it is a legacy you lead. And, and maybe that, 
that is m- the most important reason that I did not want to make a horror movie because I-, I don't want that to be my legacy. I want my legacy to make the world better, even a little bit, even if for two hours it's better. That's good for me. Grace has always had a strange way of doing things. She's a funny kid. It's extraordinary to see how her mind works. She's dealing with this better than most people at her advanced stage. She's definitely not getting any better. My first question is, have you ever seen a miracle? Grace, this is not how it's done. Hey, dig that. Destiny. Okay, where are you? See, I don't find this kind of thing funny. Where where are you? Does this coffin make me look fat? I just, I don't have time for your pranks. This is my business. I'd be more than happy to call the police. Hello, police. Thank God. I'm being held hostage in my beautiful funeral home by a bald, sickly-looking teenage girl. I just want to know what's going to happen to me. Can I ride in the hearse? Wait your turn. She is delightful. Yeah, she's a barrel of laughs, every one of them inappropriate. Where are you going, Welsha? I'm not going to fall for your tricks. It's just normalcy, Bill. Don't be afraid of being normal. Well, look who's talking. I want to believe because I believe, not because I'm afraid of dying. Teach me. Ben spoons or to believe? It's the dying that really is easy. How am I doing? You don't choose to die. It just happens when it happens. But living right takes fighting and commitment and honor and all those things that are so damn hard for so many humans. I'm not strong. Not like you. What are you afraid of, Bill? Me! Well, you'll be glad to know that it's only convenient to soon pass. And then what? What do I do when you're gone? I think some people get grace. And others never will. So when I get to the other side, do you want me to contact you? How about we not get ahead of ourselves? How about we start with the other side of the table, see how that goes? 